Frank Buckley Interviews is presented by the Mercedes-Benz Dealers of Southern California. Hi there, it's Frank Buckley. Today we have Asdrew Sierra, one of the founders and the lead singer for the L.A. band Ozo Motley. Stop is uh, one song from Ozo Motley that you might recognize, but there are many others, and we'll get into some of those during our conversation. If you don't know Ozo Motley, it's a multicultural band with Latin roots. They've won Grammys for Best Latin Rock Alternative and the Latin Grammy Award for Best Alternative Music Album. But they cross genres from Latin rock to hip-hop to world to fusion and funk. It's a band that, like L.A., is a melting pot of music. As Drew Sierra is the lead singer, he's a singer-songwriter and a keyboardist, a trumpet player, and a composer. He studied music at Cal Arts, and he's a native of L.A. He's been a cultural ambassador with Ozo Motley for the U.S. State Department, and you're going to hear one of his experiences while overseas that left a permanent impression on his heart. You'll also hear about the heartbreak that Asdrew experienced with the murder of his brother here in L.A., and how he thinks of his brother every time he sings one song in particular. Ozo Motley has been together for two decades now. They are part of the fabric of L.A., and I am grateful to Asdrew for spending some valuable time with me on a rehearsal day to tell me his story. Here's our conversation. I hope you enjoy. Asdrew, welcome uh, to Frank Buckley Interviews. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming in. I know you're really busy. You guys are uh, doing all sorts of stuff. I want to talk about all things uh, Ozo Motley and uh, your your new album that you have coming out uh, nonstop. And I, but I want to ask you, at a moment like this, you've been on the road a lot. You're performing uh, constantly. And then you have a new album coming out. Are you exhausted or exhilarated when you are getting ready to have a new album drop i'm i'm excited you know uh the only thing that exhausts me is the travel yeah because we travel a lot like in october we're gonna head out to uh australia and as much as like once we land it's all it's all gravy you know and you gotta get it's like a 16 17 hour difference yeah so it's it's yesterday over there right you know um so uh, that takes a little adjusting because in a way you're playing at 5 a.m Right. The big show at night. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and you have to just, and, and your audience sort of expects you to bring it. They don't yeah. care that you're tired. Well, you know, once we're on stage and I see the people and they're excited, it gets me excited. So, yeah. And it's the same with the guys, even though we're like about to fall on our faces. Right. I remember one time we were performing in India and uh, we just got there. We went to go play at this place and I started doing my thing and it's just exploding, right? And... Uh, I start walking. I'm like, oh, it's, 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 you're doing my thing. And all of a sudden, there was no floor. And there was just air, and I fell. Oh, man. But I stepped, like, completely perfectly, and I landed like a cat. <laughs> you know when you throw your cat? I don't know if everybody throws their cat, but you know when a cat falls. I don't falls, throw my cat. I don't throw uh, my cat either. Way, technically. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I just landed on my feet, man. And it was like, and everybody was like, whoa, man, Esther's really getting into it, man. It was like, nah, man, I was just... 
I, I kind of that I totally forced gumped that, and it wow. looked cool because I ended up with the crowd and everything, and <laughs> and they just thought I was really getting into it. But no, I was so tired. I I I went off the stage. Oh man, and and you have experience with travel. This is sort of moving forward or back in time a little bit, but you you guys uh, were State Department ambassadors for a yeah. while, representing. America, America, uh, America, uh, uh, around the world, and and where were some of the places that you visited? Uh, we went to the Middle East, like Jordan. We went to North Africa. We went to Egypt. We went to Tunis, Tunisia. We went to um, India. We went to Indonesia. We went to Thailand. We went to like, man, we went to so many places. Yeah. I mean, I remember being in Egypt and visiting. They gave us the presidential tour since we were part of the State Department, you know, and it was around the time. When um, that famous director of art, you know, that was he had his own TV show and everything. He shut down the the, the he he closed down the the, the pyramid so you couldn't mm. go in anymore, and we were allowed in. And they they dug at the Sphinx for the longest time. Nobody ever thought because it was always kind of underground a mm-hmm. little bit, and they thought it was just like that much, you know. Mm-hmm. But somebody decided, hey, why don't we dig around there, you know? And they actually dug around, and the paws went really deep, and you could really see them, and they're really clean. And you got to see that. Yeah, like right up front. We were in the middle of the dig, like hanging out with Indiana Jones kind of thing. Yeah. And we got to walk right up to it, and we're like, whoa. And we went inside the pyramids, and and people were um, tripping out on us because they were letting us go into places where they usually don't let people go. And I could see people, what's going on here? Why are they being let in there? And it's like, because we're American. (laughs) But you know, I, I got to ask you about that. You're you're an LA guy, yeah. You know, and here you are. You find yourself in Egypt, in the in the Sphinx. And yeah. it, you know, when you were growing up, did you ever think someday I'm going to be a U.S. ambassador for the State Department, getting this incredible VIP tour? I mean, the biggest rewards weren't just visiting Giza pyramids. It was really meeting people, mm. you know, because the whole point of us being there was to, like, obviously the State Department needed some help around that time. Yeah. You know, with the relations with different countries, and they got tired of sending suits over. So they said, why don't we send some people that just, like, are regular people that have a good message? And they we said no the first couple times. Mm. Because and then, you didn't want to be used? You, what yeah, we didn't the, want to get ourselves associated with the government, okay. you know? And that's kind of the basic thing. We were always that band. We were always, you know, not anti-government, but we were anti... And we were more pro-peace rather than mm-hmm. anti-war, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, yeah. you know? So we didn't want to really associate ourselves with that. But then the State Department people, which were basically ex-hippies came up to us and it says look man i know that things are crazy with the government right now but our job there is to make things better and we really need you man because people need to see something different you Mm -hmm. know and we went and we actually met all sorts of amazing people on the ground i mean on ground zero of everything Mm -hmm. that was going on we went into a palestinian camp and uh i remember there was these this group of like 12 to 14 year old boys and they were really pissed you know and uh and I remember they we were looking at them and they were saying something in their language and they just got her flyer and ripped it up and spit on the floor and we're like, wow, what's going on here? And uh, all right, well, we wanted to talk to them to find out what was going on and our translator wasn't really translating right and we could kind of catch that he was editing. Mm-hmm. With his broken English, he was telling us and he said, why do your friends blow up my little brother? Mm-hmm. 
And to make a long story short, he told us that, you know, he was, he's Palestinian, a helicopter came, an Israeli one, and uh, it blew up the kid's school. Mm -hmm. And his little brother exploded in front of him, mm -hmm. and he was explaining he had pieces of him all over him, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, despite of what you see on the news and what everything happens, this is what happens to the people. Mm -hmm. This is just ground zero. This is me talking to this kid. Mm. And uh, remember the response, we, we just couldn't say anything. And, and we, we were like, look, uh, obviously we can't fix that, but we are here to start to make a difference. If this one ripple of your message can be sent, then maybe it'll help mm. along the way. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's that's the best we could do at the time. And, yeah. I, and I still keep doing it. I remember it. You know, it was maybe nine, ten years ago when this thing happened. And it was before the big Arab Spring, I guess they called it, right. that happened in Egypt. And um, that message is important for people to know. People still have to recognize that there are children in the middle of this. That there are regular people that go into work every day. Yeah. You know? I mean, if that happened to my kids, if that happened to your kid... Mm. Do you really know how you're going to react? I mean, do you really know? I mean, with the way things are going, you don't really know if you're in the middle of grief. Yeah. That kind of grief, that kind of trauma is it's forever. Yeah. You know. And and you are able as a, a a musician, as an artist to connect in a way that as you said, someone in a suit might not be able to connect. Even yeah. a journalist who, you know, is is there to hear all sides and to to try to connect you have no agenda and you're just there you have a human agenda mm -hmm. and and i wonder what you got from it on the other side i know what you were there to to spread the word w with them but what did you find out about how people connect through music when you go on a trip like that music is pretty honest i mean we're not actors you know uh i'm not i'm i tried it, it I'm not that good, but <laughs> uh, but when you're tired on stage, you could tell. When you're inspired, it's contagious. Mm. When you're at, when you got that kind of energy, it's just people just feel it. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a feeling than the words. Mm. The words can say whatever they say, but the feeling it translates through any language. Mm. The only country that we've had problems with, singing in English and in Spanish, and this has been since 21 years, the only country we've had problems with that is here. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember famously, was it Philadelphia? You you stepped onto the stage and and tried to make a a statement about... Babu Mia Abu Jamal. Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell, tell me that story. Well... Uh, we were in Philadelphia, and we, unbeknownst to us, we, we was the first time we were on the road, really, with this band. We were on the road with the Offspring. Great bunch of guys. I love Noodles. Noodles is my favorite guy in that band. And uh, they wanted to bring us on stage with them, on the road with them, to just show the kids, hey, there's some really cool stuff happening. We wanted to show every, all our audience something different, something new. And this is in the 90s? 90s, like 98, okay. 97. And um, I remember... When we would go on and they would they would look at us and that was back when there was 12 of us in the band and there was every kind of race and color and creed that you could think of on stage, every shade. I mm -hmm. mean, we had Filipino, we had African-American, Cubans, we had Creole, we had a couple of Mexicans, we had just a whole bunch of different kind of people up mm -hmm. on stage. And I've never heard in my life 
being on stage, being told the most racist slurs that everyone can think of, the most craziest things, while we were on stage. And we were all American. And there was a couple of guys on stage that actually served in Iraq. You know, mm-hmm. It's like and that, and some that were military kids and we were like, man, you, you don't have no idea what you're saying right yeah. now just because of what it looks like to you, you know? Yeah. And, and then we were being told to get our green cards. Wow. We were told every kind of racist slur, the actual ugly ones that you could think of. And we just kept playing. And this is your the audience that you're performing yeah. for. Yeah, all through America. And, and and how do you keep going at a moment like that? Don't you just want to walk off the stage? Well, in the crowd, there were real punk rockers. And real punk rock was about, you know, fighting the establishment. It was, it was political. It was always about human rights. It was about anarchy, you know. It was about all these different things. It was, it, there was a movement. Mm-hmm. And there was all these kids that I remember they would joke around and they would say, uh, one, one guy in the stage, I forgot who it was, says, man, shut up, man. Your mom dropped you off in a Volvo here. You're not punk rock, you know, because mm-hmm. they would try to dress up the part, but they, you could tell. Yeah. Anyway. And um, in the crowd, there were some real punk rockers, like real ones, like a little older, you know, you could tell just by looking at their vibe and their eyes. And when we were saying this stuff, they were up there with their fist up. Like, yeah, man, we dig it. Hmm. And there were the older ones, and there were the other guys were just kids, really. They were like teenagers, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and this happened maybe sixty percent of the time we were on the road, but a hundred percent of the time it, it wasn't. It just wasn't working. It, it was a weird mix Man. for a tour. Uh, but I've never, never in my life have ever felt that kind of racism up hmm. front, being on stage and seeing everybody's eyeballs on you, just craziness, right? So, but you know how we do the whole crowd thing? Well, we would jump into the crowd and we would do our thing. How we would end our show with the, the big gonga line down the, down the crowd. We went and jumped down there. And we were like, what? <laughs> Everybody stayed really quiet. <laughs> Suddenly then, it was. Yeah. And then we realized, oh man, just because we were on stage, you thought that you could say that, uh-huh. that you could do that. Yeah. But now that it's in front of you, you're like, whoa, you kind of checked yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And we would go into the car and we'd do our thing and people would dance around. They would, the guys that really dug us were like, man, you guys got balls. Like, <laughs> Coming out you know? here to this. And yeah. It's like, yeah. I, mean, I mean, there was 12 of us. All of us are from the ghetto. You know, we're from, we're from L.A., man. You know, so we're, we're, we were like, all right, what's up? You know, but we right. were like, we knew we, we knew we could tell that these guys were all talk. Yeah. Have, have has it changed? I hope. Has it changed? Well, On getting the back to the percentages, at least. Yeah, it's okay. changed. But. There's a somebody riling up everybody again right now in the news. So yeah, it, it really comes out because they, you know, it's like one comes out as like, oh, he said it, yeah, you know, yeah, and it gives people permission. Gives people permission yeah. because it's it's like remember that experiment where um, it was in the '60s. I remember seeing it was all over. They they would put people in a booth and you have to electrocute the guy. So don't worry, it's not anything about you. They're taking the responsibility of of them, accountability from them doing the actual dirty work. Somebody was giving him permission to express themselves, mm-hmm. to do what they, they were, you're just being told what to do. Yeah. And, and this was in the 60s and they were torturing this guy basically. And the other, I, I forgot yes. the name of the thing, but uh, that's basically what's going on mm. for the most part. But traveling as much as we have in America, I think that's just the biggest racism. The only other side of racism at this point that I've seen traveling the world was in South Africa. Mm. Yeah. They're still pretty racist out there too where apartheid kept people apart and and that was just recent yeah yeah (laughs) you know yeah so um you know and when you describe that it's it's 
such a departure for me from who you guys are. You know, you, you talked about the fact that you look up on your stage and you see everybody. Mm-hmm. You see yourself, right? Whatever you are, you're going to see that up on the stage. I, I think that's still the, the case today. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I see is a positive energy, right? You guys, it, it, you can't help but smile. You have a sense of humor in your music. You, you, you get people going. I mean, there's an energy with with so many different instruments, and I wonder where does that sound come from? Where did it? Who said? You know what? A guy with a guitar and a drum kit—that's fine. Everybody's doing that. Let's bring in horns. Let's bring in other other voices. Who decided? How did that come to be? It was very organic, actually, because everything started out of jam sessions, and we were all playing for free for a community center back in the '90s, the early '90s, in '95 when when we first had a show, and um, it was for a community center. And if you want to rehearse, express yourself in any kind of art, you know, dance whatever you want you could do it at this one place uh, that place was uh, obtained by will dog and this group of kids that try to unionize this this job that they were having a con- some sort of a conservation corps kind of thing that was after the earthquakes and the riots uh this came up and some politician wanted to have these jobs and give these kids jobs and they would do stuff and um they try to unionize it and then you know the politician that brought this up didn't like that you know because they were really not getting paid well. Mm. And uh, to make a long story short, they had a sit-in at at the building. And through the litigation, the judge granted all the employees the building for like three or four years or two to four years to have it to um, do serve it as a youth community youth center. And you wanted to support that? Yeah, and it was called the Peace and Justice Center. And Will Dog and our original drummer were a part of that conservation core thing that they had and mm-hmm. um where the band came in is when will dog called a bunch of guys up that he knew to come and play for the just to raise funds to pay for the electricity the power whatever equipment was needed and pay you know a couple bucks at the door and then we were the band there were so many different kinds of people in the crowd that we wanted to just play something for everybody and that's where the ease of the fusion of the music was because yeah. we were all a bunch of different people. We are just hanging out. And it worked. Everything we played, everybody danced to. And yeah. we were basically dance music, you know. And it was all for a good cause. As soon as they found out we played for free for all these causes, then everybody started calling us. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like, hey, we want the free guys. But it was so much fun. I remember I was always a working musician. And I turned down a paying gig just to play with his band. You know? There was something about the spirit, you know, and of just having fun and playing whatever the heck you want. I mean, I went to CalArts, so I was used to music being really weird or different. Yeah. You know? And in those times, having music that was in English and in Spanish and a little bit of reggae, a little bit of rock, a little bit of Indian folkloric, classical in- music, you know, I love that. Yeah. You know, and a lot of the Latin stuff, of course. And I felt artistically free mm. in, in the band, you know. Let me take you to 2008, and you're talking about the sort of the international flavor of your music, Super Bowl Sunday. Um, <laughs> let's take a listen.
said no to the fishy food decibel peaks be my ritual one condition that will lay you like a municipal lyrics and ritual with puppet food to get your food and I'ma do the opposite of peace and go to war so won't put me your balls for the floor show so to hear that song at least at the beginning of it, you wouldn't think that was Ozo Motley. It's like something you'd hear on Sunrise Radio in, in London, right? <laughs> the South uh, Asian sort of uh, Indian sort of music. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then the horns come in, and it sounds like what's to me is an Ozo Motley song. But is that does that still happen in your music? Is that what sort of attracts you to this band and and do you still love that uh for me as a musician in this band exploring all those different sounds from around the world is my mo you know and trying to really learn them you know to the point where the culture behind that music is respected mm-hmm. you know we we always made it a point if we were going to try to do a certain style that we actually gave it its props mm. Like if we did any kind of Indian music, we had to make sure that it sounded proper. Because there's nothing worse as a Latino when I hear, you know, something on American radio or any radio. Yeah. And they're trying to do something that sounds kind of Mexican. And you go, <laughs> and it's like, it's, it kind of bums me out. Right. So I can only imagine what it's like for the rest of the world, you know. Yeah. And so what word about Super Bowl Sunday in particular, where did that come from? What was your inspiration I mean, this is eight years ago, so I don't... Well, Super Bowl Sunday was actually 20 years ago. 20 years ago? Yeah, it was in 95, 96. It came out on our first record, yeah. And it was about ice cream. It was 20 years ago? Yeah. It was about a Sunday, you know, S-U-N-D-A-E. Yeah. (laughs) And that's that's all it was. And I I remember it was just about that, and it was a jam. It was one of of the skeletons of the jams that we had for a long time, you know, and... Jito, the, the Japanese-American in a band that went to Arts. I mean, when I first met him, his hair was down to his legs, you know? <laughs> and, um, and he he studied, like, classical Indian music. So you hear him and another Kalartsian that, that studied that music with some amazing guys that actually play with the Beatles, like Amio Dasgupta, like all these guys at the school. So they learned it from the real guys, mm. you know? And uh, to give to pay homage to that kind of music, we wanted to make sure that we had a really cool intro, and I love that stuff, man. You know, yeah. and because um, you don't hear that anywhere, no, <laughs> right? I mean, it's it, not in America, you, right? Right, <laughs> exactly. You hear it on Sunrise Radio, but it's yeah. it's not, um, and it's so unconventional to start a song that way, and and I and I wonder when you know you've had a you haven't been just with one label. As a, as a band, when you go to the label and you say, "Check this out," right, and you guys are all proud of it, you love it, sounds great. Does the label go, "Okay, what are we supposed to do with that?" Or do they embrace it? We've been fortunate to be with labels that were like, "All right, we're down." Okay, as long as you got a couple of songs that we can shop, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. And then and be creative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the point. The point was what everybody tried to figure out is. Early on, when we were first getting signed, we would be at any club in L.A. and we would fill it up to the point where the fire department had to come down a few times and shut us down. Mm. And the real irony of it was as we were getting shut down because it was overcrowded, a club that only holds a thousand people had like 2,500 people in it to hear us play. I mean, it was so hot in there. The walls were wet (laughs) with sweat when we were playing. 
So when we were playing, we would see the firemen. They would open the doors. It was, oh, I guess we're shut down again. Right on. It looks cool. They see the label people right there and they're like, wow, this is great. You know? <laughs> and, um, and as we were leaving, we were just hanging out with the cops and the firemen. And the firemen were buying our CDs, our little oh, demos man. and our tapes back then. It was tapes. Yeah. You know? And that was really cool. You know? Uh, that kind of showed a lot. And yeah. How did you, how did you get this? So right away we ended up in Europe and in Australia and Japan, where they don't really care what language we sing in. They they don't have that kind of bag. They didn't mm. care. Mm. So we were at all these amazing festivals all around the world, and it was great. You yeah. know, yeah, <laughs> it was like the the hip hop with the world stuff with the Latin stuff would all be infused together. I mean, if we could do that, I mean, the one of the best things that we ever said was like, if we could do that with music then the people can do that. Mm. If you could do that with food, you could do that with people, you yeah. know? Yeah. Introducing the completely redesigned Mercedes-Benz E-Class. It's everything you need it to be, and so much more. Frank Buckley Interviews is presented by the Mercedes-Benz dealers of Southern California. Visit mbsocal.com for dealer details. I, I, I do wonder um, about the marketing of, of Ozo Motley. And this is an L.A. Times interview with you in 1999. <laughs> and you say in, in 99, radio is very corporate. Even though the DJs are cool, they want to play us, there's a battle they can't win with the guy in the gray suit who tells all the kids what to listen to. It's our biggest conflict because we really believe these guys are denying people the right to listen to something different, something new, something that might actually help them grow as individuals. Has that changed? A little bit. What actually has helped in many ways has been the internet. You know, just in 99, it wasn't what it is today. Um, you didn't have the distribution that you could sort of control yeah. and that people could access how yeah. they wanted to access it. Exactly. But back then, I remember we would sing a, bring a, a song like Cumbia de los Muertos, which happens to be one of the most successful songs we have and popular. And well, that song, at that point, let's, let's go ahead and listen to that. Okay. And then we can chat on the other side. Muertos was in Spanish and had the middle part in English with Charlie Tuna yeah. from Jurassic 5 on it, which is one of our original members, him and Luke, and uh, Cut Chemist. And uh, when we were going with all the record labels, like in 
like in that interview in 99, all the Spanish radios, the Spanish speaking radios would tell us, that's great, but take out that rap. We don't want to hear that rap stuff. Huh. This is a Spanish language. This station. is Spanish language. This is before the whole reggaeton breakout, you know? And, um, and then on the English side, it's like, oh, that's great, but can you do an English version? You know? And I was in my mid-20s, you know, early 20s, so I was like, nah, man, we're not going to change your music. Right. You know? And, and that was cool. It was a great choice at the time. Nowadays, it's like I've kind of expanded my mind. It's like, yeah, we could have done something. Mm. We could have probably brought in a guest maybe. You know, we probably, you know, back then, if we opened our minds a little just to come up with a different choice, uh, we could have probably, what if we had somebody in the music world that could probably bring the, both those worlds together? Mm-hmm. Like back then, I mean, think about rappers like Mellow Man Ace or... Or the Rico Suave guy. Maybe it was a little too commercial for us back then. It wouldn't have worked. But, yeah. but we. I mean, there was something that we could have done, you know. But eh, it should have, would have, could have. Who cares? We stuck to our guns, and it gave us this integrity. Yeah. But, um, we want our music to be pure. We wanted it to be what we wrote. We wanted this is art that we're trying to create, and it wasn't just about. We're not out there just a party. Our music has a message. That song is about the gang violence in Los Angeles. That song is about the Day of the Dead, which mm-hmm. is something else that extremely misunderstood and misconstrued in America. Mm-hmm. That in that night of the Day of the Dead, you, you play a cumbia, everybody dances to it, and you get to dance with the spirits of the, the loved ones that passed away. Right. That's what the song's about. And then Charlie Tuna's part talks about how the, the current situation of gang violence is and how all these children become pallbearers. You know, um, and it's it's something that we wanted to bring forth. Yo, this sure is your heart, muscle, rest in your chest cavity. We ask God to bless these festivities. Yet this hostility felt between you and me stops. Opportunity given to spread unity. Tuna be rhythmically wiping sadness clear. Breaking cumbia mixtures create this atmosphere. People packing cheers simply because these songs show death. Giving shouts to these victims of wrongful death. Now, soon as we're rid of society, small terrors, the sooner these teenagers don't have to be pallbearers and carry their vows nearer to graves. Be mature, the cure. Be mature by keeping your hearts pure. Even though the music is very festive and we that is our vibe, you know, it's about a peace rally that, rather than a protest rally, mm-hmm. you know? It's, it's about pro-peace rather than anti-war, which is a different message. Yeah. Yeah. And and that sort of music is that particular song is one of your most popular in terms of how many people have listened to it, bought it, enjoyed it. How difficult was that to get on the radio ultimately? Did they when you said, "Look, we're sticking to our guns. This is how it is. This is our art." Did anybody play it? College stations Back then, college stations became extremely powerful. There mm-hmm. was a, around the time that's what gave us our career: college stations and our tour with Carlos Santana. Mm. That that really brought it around for us. And because he gave you credibility, or what? What was it about? It was the proper forum for us because he, this was a guy that had a huge hit in the '60s that was in Spanish, and it was a cover, one of Tito Puente's covers, "Oye Cómo Va." You hear that still today in those same stations right alongside the Beatles and the Beach Boys and everybody, mm-hmm. that Oye Como Va song. So it's, it gives you that idea that sometimes things work, you know? And back then in the 60s, there was a certain movement going on then. 
Even though people say that we were bringing this fusion in music with the first ones to do it. No, we're not. People have been doing it for years. Mm. I mean, the reason the music salsa is called salsa is because it was such a mix of different kinds of music into one. Not just because it's Afro-Cuban, but they brought in a Puerto Rican element. They brought in the arrangements from the American side. They brought in, you know, different instruments that gave it a different thing. That's what they called it salsa. Yeah. It's not just regional kind of music. It was it was a big mix of different countries, different cultures in New York and the East Coast and the West Coast all in one, mm. including jazz. Mm. So, Well, to that point, I think uh, both uh, critics, journalists, corporate guys, label people, radio uh, people, they find it difficult to define Ozo Motley, right? So when, when you read an article about Ozo Motley, it says the Latin, hip-hop, funk, reggae fusion group, <laughs> right? They don't know what to put you in. And so I wonder, as the lead singer of that group, what do you, and one of the co-founders, how do you define yourself, or do you need to? I just think if they're going to put us in a box, the first thing I said to everybody, put us in all those boxes. Mm. Let's put us in all of them. We fit in all of them. Mm-hmm. We're just one of those bands. But in the world of Spotify, right, yeah. where they want you to be easy listening, country music, hip-hop, whatever, is that frustrating for you as an artist? Because to try to, to reach an audience through Spotify, they, don't they want to put you in a box? That's limiting. That's like people. Like people are mixed now, you know, like in race. Like you could be... You could look African-American, but you're probably from Panama. Mm -hmm. And probably that guy's mom is Korean, Mm -hmm. which is very obvious nowadays. You could be named Buckley and have a Japanese mother. Exactly. Yeah. So what are you? That's a question I've been asked my whole life. I'm a human being. Yeah. Yeah. And you're both. You're all of it, too. Yeah. And if people like it, cool. Right. And that's that's the thing about labeling because it makes it makes it easier for the guy that's trying to sell stuff, and that's that's understandable. Yeah. But I would rather just say, yeah, they're all of that. And does that matter to you though? Because I think many musicians slash artists go into art also seeking commerce, right? They they yeah. see the the guy you know in the limousine and staying in a fancy hotel and living in a big mansion and think. Hey, I can sing. I want that too. <laughs> Has that ever been a driver for you? Well, that kind of changed for me as a musician. I can only speak for myself in this uh, once I had kids. Mm, yeah. Then you got to feed everybody. Then you got to feed everybody. You got to worry about saying, wait a minute, can we make a little more money than that? And then I realized and I looked at my band and there was 12 of us. I'm like, <laughs> wow. Well, I'm not going to kick anybody out. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's terrible. Like, that's, and that's not who we are. Yeah. So we just best way to make money was the volume so we played all the time i remember you turned it up to 11 yeah the touring and i gotta (laughs) tell you man that was brutal as much as it was fun to do music uh trying to find that balance the human balance of work and being a family man was really hard yeah because i love my kids and i love my wife i know you do and I, i i really wanted to be there but i remember doing my taxes once and I was checking how many days I was on the road to kind of like put myself in a bracket or something. And I counted the days. and I never really counted the days of how much I was gone. It was 270 days Ooh. in this one year. 270 days. Wow. Can you imagine being away from your wife 
No. And your kids? No, I for can't. 270 days. Yeah. Out of the year. And in between all of those days, you're trying to rest and trying to be human because you're, it always would take me like two days to like come back. Of course. Or more. Yeah. Know? And it was very unhealthy for all of us. And mm. soon enough, that 12 turned into what it is today, six. Mm. You know, because some of them, they had different things that they just had their own lives. And they just, some of them, I remember being on the road and as much as it was great playing in this great festivals and being in a bus and everything it wasn't a fancy bus mm -hmm. we weren't flying first class mm -hmm. you know and in order to make everything happen and to be able to bring enough money home mm -hmm. we had to like we all would share rooms we would do everything what we can what we could when we were starting out and uh a lot of the guys fell a lot there was a lot of emotional and mental like breakdowns and challenges mm. and, and little by little they just would bow out they would step out gracefully yeah you know because you do hear about that bands on the road and you and you it's typically three or four guys maybe five guys and and the intensity of that life all day professionally yeah. all day personally you're in each other's face and in, in each other's space and it often results in not just tension but conflict yeah and um, so it sounds like you had some of that, but yeah, I, I don't want you to, you know, get too personal, but can you tell us what that was like or give us an example? Well, for example, being on the road this much, there's always somebody that's going to question, Hey man, are we making the ends to make this worth our while? Mm. Cause it's great that we do music and we have a message and everything, but I want to be able to come home with something. I want, and I want to be able to make a living out of this. Yeah. That's my ambition. There's nothing wrong with ambition. Yeah, And that was kind of one of the things we might have battled with, you know. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of guys that didn't have kids and wives, and there was a couple that did. Mm -hmm. And it's you know, like, it, was, does it become like an integrity versus uh, making money? Yeah, Art, artistry versus commerce. Yeah. Definitely. And, and then it also, what the biggest underlying thing was finding balance and spiritual and mental health. Mm. It was the biggest one. Because sometimes when you're on the road a lot, there was a lot of solitude and all of that. Mm. And a lot of things come out of things like that, you know? A lot of, it could be addiction, it could be relations with people at home, you know? Trying to maintain something, realizing what's real and what's not. Yeah. And it was a lot of growing. In the 21 years of a band, we've really grown to get individually and collectively. Mm -hmm. Like the way we handle our band, our business is very important. It has to be healthy. We always aim for the healthiest way. Yeah. You well, know? to that point, you I mean, one of the things you guys have done historically, I don't know if you still do this, is you share writing credits, yeah. right? And I guess in some ways that's a nice democratic principle and you guys are all working together toward one cause. But what happens when one guy's shoulders all the writing and and some other guy down the the band is is not involved in that and that's got to be tough well it's a choice you know uh because the alternative would be then there's no more band mm. you know and and it's uh it's really a matter of if we really are going to walk the walk that we do then we have to do it on all on all grounds mm -hmm. Like if we say all for one, one for all, then we really got to mean it. Like if somebody's having a problem, if somebody's having a personal thing, you support them. Mm -hmm. And we've done that. Yeah. I remember when 
my wife and I were going to have our first son, um, for example, just to kind of show you the humanity of, of the collective of Rosamatli. Mm. Um, insurance didn't cover, so we had to pay everything cash. Man. And it's a 12-piece band, you know? Yeah. So kids are expensive. Yes, they are. You know? So they, they called my kid a pre-existing condition. Oh my goodness. Just to kind of tell you the insurance back then in the 90s, right? In the late 99 when my son was born. And they said, um, sorry, you're not covered. So you got to. So we were already going to all these things. And all of a sudden we owe $5,000. Uh. Just those regular prenatal visits and the meds and, you know, not the meds, the vitamins. And I mean, for a 12 piece band, you know, we're not really making that kind of dough. We're just starting out. Yeah. So the band as a collective decided, hey man, let's do a baby fund. Let's let's do a raising for this kid because that's we obviously wow. we're it's part of fighting the establishment, you know, yeah, when yeah. we were back then, and and then also was the human part where we're like, man, this our brother's having the baby. We got to help out. And so everyone raised money to yeah. to pay for the bills. Yeah. Little did we know that kids would still keep being expensive, and then they still <laughs> needed time. Yeah. So we had to go through those growing pains of when we needed to be home. Yeah. There were times like, like the the band would say, "We can't do shows without Andrew. We got to do, you got to you got to be on the road, bro." That's how we make money because it really mm -hmm. was. Yeah, our shows was how we made money. Right. You know. Well, that's the two two ways, right? In the music publishing and being on the road. Yeah. And yeah. Live performance. Yes, but we were assigned to a label. <laughs> like my, I remember uh, reading this other interview about the Black Eyed Peas, and even though that one record that everybody knows made it really huge mm -hmm. they still owed like millions in um you know in advances and everything so they didn't really start making any money until after that record wow you know and we were bands that were we're from the same town we grew up together musically and artistically professionally you know yeah. we were always side to side we did shows together yeah. and uh i love their success because i remember when they were really broke and seeing him now just brings me such joy. I mean, yeah. And Will is such a great guy. All of those guys are a great guy. Nobody knows it, but Will I am grew up in East LA. Yeah. In the <laughs> in, and, in the projects, and, Loreno, right. and you know, and Apple's his brother, basically. Yeah. His adopted brother. And and Fergie's my girl. She's you know, she's cool. She's she's cool. We, she's we from to, like Hacienda Heights or something. Yeah, like, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. And she was in another band that I remember when we were recording our first record, she was in the other room. I think the band was called Blue Orchid or Wild Orchid or something like that. Yeah. But she was in that band and we ended up being label mates, you know, we were on Interscope together and they're just the coolest people I ever met, yeah. you know. Your your personal journey, I've known you for about 10 years and I feel like you're in a really good place right now. Yeah. You know, as a as a person and, and obviously professionally. Do you feel that? Do you have this sense of sort of calm or zen or how would you describe where you are right now i think i'm feeling more serenity nowadays mm -hmm. i think i went through my 20s fighting and then in my 30s getting to the point of accepting mm. and nowadays i'm feeling a little more serenity in my 40s because mm -hmm. um, i think um i realized the hardest thing I had to learn that things are really black and white. Nah, sometimes things are really gray. Yeah. And you have to decide that as a father, mm. as a husband, 
as a bandmate, as a business person. Mm-hmm. And finding balance is the hardest thing. Yeah. You know? Um, and really trying to find things that are decisions that are not, that are meant for sharing. Mm-hmm. Like even the songwriting thing, um, sharing is always the best way to go because I live in a world where everybody has to be in a balance. Mm-hmm. It's a world in which all other worlds can coincide. Mm-hmm. And I've, I'm still learning. I'm not saying that I know everything there is, but I know that there's something in that balance of, of really sharing things, mm. you know? Because if you're in it for yourself all the time, you end up alone. Yeah. You know, and I've, and I've seen that in a lot of people that have a lot of success, material or wise or other. They end up just having a bunch of people around them that are just around them because of that. Yeah. You know? Well, I see it in you even when you're talking about the Black Eyed Peas or Will I Am or Fergie. Because it's such a competitive business, I mean, you, you sometimes talk to you know artists in, in various parts of the entertainment industry, quote unquote, and they will say one thing publicly, but privately, you know, they're talking behind someone's back and yeah. you don't, you aren't that guy. No, I, I mean, I'm not perfect either. Well, I, nobody's I can't be perfect. grumpy. Right. <laughs> I might get pissed at something, but yeah. but yeah, I mean, I've, that's what I aim for, you know? Because I know that's the guideline to be in, you know, yeah. that's, but, uh, but yeah, n- nothing good ever comes out of being that way. Yeah. The, all the best things that I ever received in my life, it's not exactly about money or success or, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, every good thing that ever came out in my life was being of service mm. to other people, to other human beings, helping out. Yeah. All the best things that happened to me, now that I realize in retrospect, was when I was actually not trying to be so self-seeking, so mm. self-serving, mm. you know? It was always something of me giving, yeah, you know? And not having a camera there to see you give it. Because yeah. that doesn't count, you know? Right. And Then you're doing it for another reason. Yeah. You're not doing it just to give. It's funny because I heard of, of a lot of amazing stories came out of, from Prince, you know, that privately when he would help people, he would just help them. And there was no like camera there or anything. Yeah. So everybody just walked away with that experience from him. Mm. He had a lot of fears, a lot of phobias, and defects, you know, because that's what ends up happening when you do drugs and you live in that kind of world. It just happens and mm-hmm. it touches you. Yeah. But everybody remembers him for how much he helped people and how cool he was with people. And you hear all these stories. And, like, I would rather be remembered for that, Yeah. you know. And it's only because I have maybe having my kids and my wife really – Help me really see that come to that realization. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I feel like having children made me think, wow, this is why I'm on this earth, mm-hmm. right? You don't, up until that point, you're just on the treadmill and you're working your butt off and you're think, seeing professional goals. Yeah. And then suddenly it's like, wow, this is, uh, this is serious stuff. This yeah. is really important. I'm shaping someone's world. And, uh, it better be a good world for them. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because whatever... I remember there was this one song I did uh, that came out on the EP, and it was basically about this one man throughout his whole life. He always made a fight out of everything. Mm. And he created the environment that he lives in. So he had children, and they ended up living in that world that he created. Yeah. And his child died because of the fights that he created. Mm. So he looks back on himself as like, what could I, could I have done 
to help this environment mm. you know would it, i would have felt better about myself if i actually did something positive the whole time yeah. at least that i know that i did my part right but instead he knows that the way that in this scenario his child died because of it later on mm. in life because of the fight that he created yeah it's a ripple effect you know yeah um let, let me talk about something that you did recently in the past couple of years um artistically outside of Ozomotli. <laughs> you worked with uh Baltazar Getty That's my boy. Yeah, on uh, Abstracto. Yeah, yeah. Tell um, me about that. Um I would get really artsy and sometimes it was too artsy for the band. So I just ended up writing all this stuff that was really cinematic and groovy but not like also my like hey what's up right, you know, right. like fiesta <laughs> and um, and when and you would write something like that and with the intention of making it part of Ozo Motley and your bandmates would look at you or you knew this was not going to be Ozo I knew Motley. it wasn't going to be because right. <laughs> it was a little too dark it was a little too uh, it wasn't Ozo Motley it was more Asdru and uh-huh. yeah I mean I'm the only guy in the band that wears black all the time right you know I uh, I love a good Quentin Tarantino, tragic, crazy movie. Oh, I, I love I, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, you know, I, I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I and I went to school to be um, a film uh, music major. Oh. You know? So I I really wanted to pursue that. I wanted to be the Mexican Danny Elfman, mm. you know? That was like, or John Williams or Henry Mancini. You wanted to score films. I wanted to score films for a living, yeah. I didn't know that. That was my main thing. I know how to do that. I uh, ended up, when Ozomati came around, I just left school and I didn't finish. But I was I was this close to getting into the conducting part of school, and wow. I, I learned a little bit. But I learned how to f- score film. I learned how to write for orchestras, the whole shebang. I mean, Henry Mancini was my biggest influence because I met him when I was sixteen, seventeen, and I played Pink Panther with him. I was the lead trumpet player in that, and Henry Mancini was one of the as far as film scoring is a huge influence and the things that I learned from him and what he's done as a film composer mm-hmm. and all those film buffs know what I'm talking about. It's like, he's the kind of guy that could create one melody that can fit in every mood and mm-hmm. every, um, it could be foreboding. It could be happy. It could be sad. It could be contemplative. It could mm-hmm. be anything. And that, that is an art to be able mm-hmm. to do something like that, you know? Yeah. And so, so this was your background it was what a, a a creative thing that you wanted to. I wanted to just, that you wanted to scratch. Yeah, I remember I had this one song and it had a lot of marching boots and I got these boots and I just started doing it and that was the beat. So it sounded like there was just marching going on. It was about just going through life, you know, basically mm-hmm. what we're talking about and learning from it. And no matter what happens, you keep marching through. And it was just marching boots and a lot of horns and the moog, bass, and uh, it sounded really trippy, like a like a really creepy uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly in a way, mm-hmm. you know? Like, uh, I love Leone's, uh, you know, uh, Cohen's, uh compositions are some of my favorites too, you know? So I had that and I played those crazy trumpets and the band was like, wow, that's kind of dark, bro. You know <laughs> <laughs> So, it, you know, it didn't work. So I remember hanging out with Balt at his house at one of the one of our kids' parties, yeah. and uh, we went downstairs, and he had the studio, and he listened to it. He goes, "Bro, I got this <laughs> record label. I'm opening up, and I want you to be in it." It's like, "Oh, really? You like this dark stuff? The darker, the better." Really? It's like, so it's like, so that I really got. That's off how on it that. came to be. Yeah, 
And he was like, dude, just bring all that to me and just, and I would basically live in his house because he had a studio and it's a, I mean, it's a big house, you yeah. know, he's a Getty, you know? <laughs> so it's a huge place. And I lived in the studio for like, uh, like a month. Huh. And, um, and I would just sit there and I would write, I would meditate, I would come out and hang out with his dogs. They were my pillows. And, uh, and I wrote this record and he was, he totally, you know, geffened the shit out of it, you know? <laughs> He's a, and he's a great producer because he's a great coach mm. and he knew exactly what I was going for. Mm. And there was no, he was the label and we, I could do whatever the heck I wanted. Yeah. And artistically, that was probably one of the most gratifying things that I've ever done. Really? Yeah. One of the most gratifying things you've ever done. In artistically, this, yeah. Yeah, this long career. Yeah. That's an amazing statement. Yeah, because if you listen to it, 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 it was... And he put it, it sounds like you're making music for a movie that hasn't been filmed yet. So, yeah. Do you see that film in your head when you're composing it? Or do yeah, you... it's a, everything's a situation. And I was, originally, it was, I was writing a lot of stuff inspired by the nine basic Shakespearean stories, like the love, lost, lovers, cross lovers, and, and um, putting that in a kind of like today with a bunch of cholo-looking dudes with tattoos and women and it happening in that, that version. Kind of like what, um, what West Side Story was, you know. Mm. And, and that's kind of how I did it. And then not, and then the, the, but then it was too much Shakespeare, I guess, and, you know, it just changed after that. If, if people want to check out, you know, that uh, album or a, a track, is there one track in particular that you would say this is representative of what I'm talking about or what, what I like the most? Yeah, either Marcando Paso. Marchando por mi gente y familia Marchando en mi mente, mi vida Marcando mi paso hasta el cielo Or Venganza, which is, that one is the more the Latino Hamlet hmm. and Vengeance. You know, it's the, about the moment when he finds out that his father was betrayed and killed. Hmm. And that I made a song out of that moment. Ozo Motley uh, is is back with a uh, new album that'll be coming out soon. Um, tell us about the album. Uh, what's the inspiration? What is it going to sound like? The new Ozo Motley record, nonstop. Well, we are paying tribute to a lot of the Mexican, in particular, um, descendant and 
artists and composers, songwriters. And for example, we're paying tribute to Carlos Santana, Mana, uh, one songwriter, Consuelo, that wrote um, that song, Besame Mucho, that has been translated in 54 languages. Mm. Can you mention that royalty check? I, mean, <laughs> I can't. You know, <laughs> I mean, but I bet you can. And I mean, the Beatles covered that song, you know? Yeah. And um, that's huge for the Beatles to be songwriters and then they take a song like that, yeah. you know? So um, we pay tribute to that because it's important to really understand what our influences are, what our where our music comes from, mm. you know? And it gives us a sense of, um, we, we just really need to recognize this part of our music. It's just one part, you know? And uh, some of the guys we knew, like we did the song for Manav, we knew those guys that showed it to them, they they, they love it, you know? Um, we did one, one of Selena Quintanilla songs. Uh, I called AB. It's like, you got to hear this, bro. I just want to make sure you like it, you know? And, and I guess he dug it, man. He's, uh. he's, and, um, and, of course, one for Juan Gabriel, who just passed away. Yeah. You know, and uh, these are iconic. I mean, the pain I felt as an artist, as a musician, when Bowie left us, you know, I kind of feel the same with Juan Gabriel. Because mm. when you see, as an artist, a big icon like that still there, you kind of like feel safe in a weird artistic way. Because mm. you have someone, at least they're fighting the good fight. Mm -hmm. Not really fighting, but they're being this amazing artist. And it's, in, it's full of integrity and... It's a for me. It seemed like a good balance of commerce and art. You yeah, know? and at sixty six, he was still doing it. Yeah, yeah. It was and so I, sudden. Yeah, and I think he could have, like him, just like Prince. Yeah, there had to be a new. An, uh, I wanted to hear a duets record. Mm. You know, like Ray Charles did, like like Sinatra did. You know, but I would have loved to have heard Prince do something with, you know, many of the new artists out there. Some people that he liked, yeah. like Bowie loved Lord. You know. He she he said that she was the future of music. Wow! You know, my kids love Lord. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, I, I love Lord. I, mm -hmm. We were on a tour in, um, in Japan and we played at this festival, the Fuji Rock. This was last year or two years ago, and I saw her show and I I was floored. How amazing this teenager could do a show like that! I could see why David Bowie really loved her. Mm -hmm. And in the Brit Awards, that performance really paid tribute to Bowie. Mm. I really felt that they did it right. Yeah, you know. And you know uh, a good performance and a a present performer in a way that the rest of us don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I look up on the stage, I I watch a gig or I you know see a concert, and I think, oh, okay, I recognize the music, I like it, I'm having a good time. But you must, I would imagine, look up at a, a during a concert and know if those performers are present and really feeling it. And is that is that an accurate sort of thought my biggest thing is if they could do that same song without all that electric stuff without all that dancing with all that it could really sing the shit out of the song mm. then just that way just naked then then it's great and they could still give us good solid performance like that and if you think of all the most solid artists that you like if you strip away all that production all that all those effects and everything does this song does a performance still stick out mm. And do you still feel that when you're on the stage today after all these years? Do you, is, I, I would imagine like all of us, there's a moment when you're on autopilot, right? I'm doing my job today and then I go home. Yeah. And right. And there must be days like that on stage, but 
but I would imagine there are other days when, I mean, I see two musicians and you can sort of feel it sometimes when they're really in the groove together. And I can't imagine you're on a stage with all of these guys at the same time. Can you, for the, I'm not a musician. Can you try to help me understand and experience what you experience when you're in that groove, when you know that it's going exactly the way you want it to go? Well, I know that, for example, that song Cumbia de los Muertos is, that's the one song that I always look forward to doing. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing it since the first record. And it's because it really means something to me. Mm. And if it really means something to me, then I'm going to perform it like that. That song is basically about gang violence and everything, and it, it's kind of paying tribute to learning from how my brother died from gang violence mm -hmm. and drugs and all of that. You know, it's just all tied together. And really taking it as a learning experience and really taking what Dia de los Muertos really means. Not the spooky thing with the calaveras and stuff. That's just a part of it to take away the scariness from death. Because mm -hmm. death is not meant to be the spooky, scary, taboo thing that you try to hide your kids away from. No, it's about showing it appropriately mm -hmm. what it means mm -hmm. like there's mother's day there's father's day there's day of the dead that's all it is okay you know and um it's also taking such a traumatic experience of my brother getting murdered that to really turn it into a song and give it with a positive message yeah so when i'm performing that as a musician as an artist i want to be the best thing the best point where i could be as a good singer that i could be I want to be the best performer because there's a show business part of it too. Yeah. And I want to be able to really show the emotion that I meant, you know. And I've been I've been having a good biting average of doing that almost at every show. Yeah. That's great. And I think the audiences appreciate it. Um I, I do want to play a, a track for from your your new record. Okay. And um and I, I wanna ask you, you know, it's it's I'm sure like picking from one's children. Um, but do you have a favorite and which one would you like to listen to? I like to listen to Como La Flora version of it, which is a great um, tribute to Selena Quintanilla who passed away. Just one of those artists that are just gone way too soon. All right, let's go ahead and take a listen. Selena Quintanilla was 
one of the most amazing divas that ever came out. You know, Mexican-American lady that had an amazing voice and she was about to cross over and just take over the world, you know, just like Shakira did, you know. Um, but there was something about her that she just had the spirit that was just contagious. Why you know? does that happen? It, di to die in such a tragic, ridiculous way. And it seems to happen with so many promising young people. I think life happens, and I think the... As far as human beings, we need to always pay attention to the spiritual and mental health of overall. Because it was spiritual and mental health that somebody that was very spiritually and mentally sick that took Selena Quintanilla away from us. Mm. You know, she just, I don't, she had like a nervous breakdown. She was not mentally well and she, she killed Selena. Mm -hmm. And um, on the other side of it, a lot of artists that die because of drugs or alcohol, suicide, you know, the, the mystical thing about the 27 year old thing. Um, that's another part of it. It's spiritual, mental health. Yeah. And it's just it just kind of goes to show you that you could have all the money and all the success in the world, but if you ain't right in your head and your heart and your spirit, that's going to take you out. Yeah, so true. Yeah. Um, last questions. Where, where do you go from here as a band? Where does Oza Motley go? And then talk to me about As Drew Sierra, because the thing that you talk about, the film composing, <laughs> I... I, I I want to know: Are you are you going in that direction? Are we going to see you score some big films? Or so, talk to me about both. Well, Ozomali is just after twenty one years. It's just a nonstop thing, and I think that's kind of a, the multiple definition of the our new record called Nonstop, rather than us going, you know, from Mexico to Jamaica in this big mix of a record, which is gonna it's amazing working with these guys, and um, but also the fact that that we have been nonstop after 21 years. And I, a lot of that is attributed to just finding spiritual and mental balance, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that's really what it is, yeah. you know? But as far as uh, film scoring, I've been scoring some films. I've been doing some documentaries. I've, I've actually even um, guested vocally and on different kinds of things. And it doesn't really sound like Ozo Matli. Like I, I sang on The Gods of Egypt, because huh. I, uh, uh, I was able to sing that Egyptian style, the mi the Middle East kind of stylings that they would put in with the composing film. I also uh, been her, I guess that too, and you could hear my voice in that. And, no uh, kidding. Yeah, and the re most recent one, which is kind of a trip, is that movie Sausage Party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never cussed. It said that much crazy stuff. I don't know. I haven't seen the movie yet, so I don't know what they kept or they didn't. Big hit. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm in I'm in that in the background just singing a bunch of crazy stuff and I was able to play all the different sing all the male parts of all the different kinds of the world because also Motley does just about everything else and I studied everything from uh, the Mexican as I am Mexican as I am into like the whole Latin culture into the Middle Eastern to the Indian to the they even had me sing in Mandarin which is a trip wow because of all the food all huh. the different kinds of food that's in it, you know, like they had, a, they would go to each section and they would have to hear different kind of music saying that same line, you know, which is crazy. It's kind of a lot, of very cussy. But um, <laughs> anyway, that was, uh, I remember doing that film 
and I know the composer where I work with them with the mother stuff before Chris Leonard's and he was like they would just love to watch me watch the film that I was going to sing to just to see my reaction <laughs> oh man what a, I've never done anything like that but but yeah I've done that and I've done a lot of I've done a few movies and a few films I got you know but I mean Henry Mancini style I'm talking about like a big studio thing <sighs> where you take charge of the entire of the yeah the orchestra for the entire film you know the arranging, the composing, the I've, the music supervision, all of it. Is that something that? Yes, that's what I've I've done little bits here and there. Yeah, I have done stuff like that. I've worked with orchestras, I've I've arranged for them. I've you know I I'm I'm an old school composer. I've learned the old way. You mm-hmm. know, so um, but I also use a lot of the new stuff. But yeah, I have done some stuff like that. I've used strings. My wife plays cello. I yeah. kind of forced her to play cello a few times. But yeah, I I would love to get to that point. You know, that that would be a dream come true for me to actually do something that big. But yeah, you know, that is that is kind of a big dream. And, it, and also doing stuff like that, it allows me to be home more. Yeah. You know, I mean, come on. Our, our kids are in 10th grade now. Yeah. We got, what, three years left with them? And then they're... Then they're, yeah. I mean, and I'm, I'm going to be an empty nester completely. My older son is... Off at college already, so you know at least you got uh, your Ella daughter for yeah. another year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah and they and they both want to go somewhere far. Like, oh. Are you sure you don't want to go to community college? <laughs> Her balper just gave all this money. To- <laughs> like- well, listen, Astro, I've really appreciated uh, the conversation and so um, much of your time, and uh, it, it's really been a pleasure uh, both speaking to you, listening to your music all these years, and I, I want to thank you. Thank you, Frank. It's, it's always such a pleasure Thanks, hanging out with you right. and everything. Thank you, Richard. And that was Asdrew Sierra of Ozomotley. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I've got links to uh, Asdrew's personal website and to Ozomotley's website on our podcast page where you can learn more about their new album, Nonstop. You can also learn more about Asdrew's collaboration, Abstracto, with Baltazar Getty. That's also on our podcast page, which you can find at ktla.com slash interviews. Let me know what you think with an email at frankbuckleyinterviews at ktla.com or post your thoughts on my social media on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Frank Buckley TV. On Facebook, I'm just Frank Buckley. Thanks to Asdrew for the time and to you for yours. Until next time, I'll see you on TV. Frank Buckley Interviews is presented by the Mercedes-Benz Dealers of Southern California. Visit mbsocal.com for dealer details.